I'm Mick Garrison. It's time once again for the fun-sized version of Postmortem AMA, where you can ask me anything. And the channel through which you ask your questions is producer Joe Russo. Joe, how are you? I am well, Mick. How are you? Uh, never better, as usual. Good. You had some uh, some some interesting thing drop about a week ago that has to do with your music career. Do you want to chat about that before we dive into some questions? <laughs> we can do that if you want. You know, I do years, want to do that. As you know, years ago in the 70s, I was in a band, a prog rock band called Horse Feathers. And uh, we actually put out our first album of updated uh, songs from that era uh, called Symphony for a Million Mice. Well, my fellow Horse Feathers conspirators and I um, recorded a song called Shake and Be Friends, but we released it secretly as Tube Top with an umlaut over the U and a slash through the O, um, <laughs> saying it was uh, Lars, Lars, Lars and Bjorn uh, from Iceland. <laughs> and uh, nobody uh, really seemed to take the bait. Several people did, but uh, we were outed as actually being the guys behind that. So it is on all of the streamers. It's on Spotify and Apple Music and every place uh, that, that you go. Uh, and I don't know if it's credited to Tube Top or Horse Feathers at this point since we've been outed, but it's out there. That's fun. That's really fun. And it is quite an earworm. So uh, we'll yeah, that. it is a dance thing, which is the antithesis of what Horse Feathers, a prog rock band, was all about. <laughs> now this is our, our our dance craze. Shake and be friends. It's fun. So, it's a lot of fun. So, uh, well, I, the reason I brought that up um, particularly is our first question actually has to do with uh, singing. So Darth oh. Frazier asks on the set of Critters Two. Was Scott Grimes the wonderful singer that he is now? You know, I had no idea. He was 16 years old when we did Critters 2, and he was very committed. He was in almost every scene of the movie as right. the star of the film. So there wasn't really time to discover that. Uh, so it was a revelation to me to later on find out that, oh, Scott's a singer. And he's a very he, good singer, too. Really uh, good. And yeah imagine the fun we could have had had i known that. <laughs> no it did not become uh apparent to me until after we had wrapped the movie a while quite a few years after that well there you go uh bernie gumbano asks michael freddie or jason who is your favorite of the big three and why hmm okay this is a, a question that's uh, on many memes throughout uh <laughs> the internet. Um, but I think I would probably have to go with Team Freddy. Michael and Jason are scary because they are silent hulking figures that don't have a personality. And uh, that gets a little tiresome after a while. <laughs> sure. Uh, and I don't really need to know the roots of Michael Myers or of, uh, or of Jason Voorhees. But with Freddy, He's got a personality. He wasn't the jokester so much in the first, uh, and in my opinion, still the best nightmare on Elm Street. Um, and there's a lot to him. He's witty. But also, when you're dealing with dreams, you're dealing with dreamscapes that are very cinematic that don't have to be grounded in reality. Mm -hmm. And you can go into the surreal and the, the hyper real 
uh, in those dreams where you can do imaginative things that don't have to play like real life and still be fear-inducing when those dreams cross over into real life. So I think that makes for a little more of a, a, of a rich uh, stew of, of cinematic imagination. I mean, you can't argue with that. Freddie definitely has the <laughs> most personality and he has the most elaborate kills and, and the storytelling allows for it. So yeah, I think I think that is a, a very justified answer, Bernie Gambano. Uh, but following up on that, I guess this is and this is an interesting question in that regard. Mike D wants to know why aren't there any more modern horror icon equivalents to Freddie, Jason, and Michael Myers? So it really hasn't been like that era was defined by those three and there hasn't really been i guess you know that that kind of height of popularity and cultural awareness of uh monsters and ghouls and coast ghosts and such no you won't find jigsaw referenced on a local sitcom you know uh, uh the way you would uh, michael myers or jason Voorhees or yeah freddie freddie krueger the closest um, i could think of in the last 10 years was maybe the annabelle doll uh, yeah, I was thinking the conjuring thing, you know, franchises are a little different these days. They are are much more packaged marketing than back in the day. I mean, they were as well. You know, a nightmare on Elm Street, nobody planned on there being a second, third or fourth. These days they make genre films with the hopes of creating a franchise. Uh, so I think the beginning of that was Shocker, Wes Craven's movie, where they really thought they were going to set up another Freddy franchise and yeah. the movie did not perform well. But that was the first time they really set out to make a horror franchise. And though it didn't work out, it set the stage for everything that was to come in the in the 2000s. So kind of maybe the root of what we're saying is if, if it comes from a more authentic place, then then because I mean, like, for example, the Duke, we only got one Duke movie, and that's become an LGBTQ icon. Right. Uh, and just you know? a great fucking movie. So. Right. Yeah. So so maybe maybe that is what it is. Maybe if you if you try too hard to create the franchise out of the character, you're, you're probably not going to find an audience resonate quite so much. I and mean, even the first Conjuring movie, Annabelle was such a small part of it but yeah. she grew into a phenomenon. So it, it kind of speaks to what you're saying. And, and even Jigsaw and, and, and the Billy, the puppet, you know, uh, that, that, that had its moment in the two thousands as well. I'd, I'd say those are probably the two most memorable for sure. And interesting. They both came from the mind of uh, James Wan. Wan. Yeah. Okay. So, so uh, yeah, you know, the franchises, it's interesting how these have become huge franchises and there are so many of them, but they're not centered around a particular villain. Yeah, or or a, a personality like those characters, which right. is you know, which is why I think people always want them to come back. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> John writes, "Can you share your thoughts on Train to Busan?" Oh, I think it's magnificent. I have not seen Peninsula, its sequel, but I haven't either. Uh, I think it's on know, Shutter right now. I think it is, and I'll have to check it out because I really love the film. I saw it at a couple of uh, festivals overseas. And, you know, it's two and a half hours long. Like many South Korean genre films, they're very long, but they're also really sentimental. This is fearlessly sentimental. And that's something that rarely works when you're talking horror films, but is a staple of the deeper 
uh, South Korean attempts at this. I, you know, I, I keep thinking I'm done with the zombie genre because you see it, you know, driven into the ground and the tropes are just how, uh, how can you make this new after all these years since 1968 when George Romero first did it. But they found a way to do it. You know, one cut of the dead, uh, which is Japanese, is another way. Uh, they found a way to breathe new life into into the zombie movies. So once in a while, it still happens, and that was one of the freshest ones. And the girl with all the gifts is another one that breathed new life into into the zombie genre. So if somebody can hook me with a zombie movie, that that's an accomplishment. Very special. Yeah. And Train to Busan is very special. Really is. Uh, DC asks, what is the difference between all the different types of producer labels, executive <laughs> producers, co-producers, line producers, associate producers? Mick, can we, can we put a nail in this coffin and answer this question once and for all? Well, I think it's too varied, uh, and the answer is complicated, and it also makes a huge difference whether you're talking about television or feature films. Absolutely. They're the different answers for different mediums. Yeah. In television, the executive producer is by far the most important person involved, even more important than the director. Usually, it's someone who created a show. They wrote the pilot. They are the showrunner, something like that. Um, but there are also executive producers who just helped get it made or um, was the guy's manager. Uh, <laughs> that has certainly I happened. Like, I feel like there's some, some weight behind that one. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, um, you know, in feature films, most important is the producer. Executive producers are usually people who helped get a movie off the ground or helped arrange financing or were involved in acquiring uh, the actors or uh, packaging, that sort of thing. So the producers who actually, the line producer is someone who does the nuts and bolts work. Yep. That's the person who's there day to day, who oversees where the money goes, how it's allotted, mm -hmm. uh, usually works closely in line with the uh, production coordinator and, and you know all of the people. The first ADs often report as much to the line producer as they do to the director. Um, in television, the associate producer is usually the post-production supervisor. Associate producer can be anything. It can mm -hmm. be uh, a, a peace offering. Uh, it can be, well, my friend helped us get the, uh, uh, the production designer on board. And so we promised him an associate producer credit or it can be something that was genuinely helpful in the making of the production but there are no finite lines drawn so there's kind of a quick sampling of what producers can be but it is by no means comprehensive nor nor do all producers fit into those uh job rules yeah exactly i think every movie and every television show will have a unique answer to that question for sure. Yeah. If you watch a movie these days, it is not surprising to see the number of producers in the teens in the credits. Yeah. I mean, literally up to 20 producers. Some of them have no reason being there other than it's contractual. Yep. And often actors in movies will get credited as executive producers so that they'll take a pay cut. Um, and still feel a, a sense of attachment to that. And again, yep. 
managers and agents often uh, attach themselves in that regard. There, there were some people that are credited as producers on Nightmare Cinema that I still haven't met. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, more than one of my movies, uh, I can say this <laughs> name. I same same with Hard Kill. I think we're we're close to twenty. I don't even know who eighteen of them are. So, uh, <laughs> but um, the kind of staying on, I guess, business related questions. Uh, Ryan writes in a time when so many creatives seem to be moving to secondary entertainment markets like Georgia, Austin, Portland, etc. What do you think keeps people tied to Los Angeles? Well, the reason the, the industry moved here from New Jersey in the first place was because of the weather. And so much of film production back in the 20s, in the teens and 20s and 30s was done outside of the studios, but they built the studios to have control there. And the likelihood of being able to have good weather for shooting conditions on the West Coast in sunny Southern California was the major reason for the move. But now the machinery is here as well. All of the studios, all of the networks, you know, their primary headquarters are here in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. um, the, the industry does move to wherever it's cheaper uh, and they use it up. You know, for a while it was Utah when I did the stand. It, it was a right to work state and there was production there. You don't see so much of it in Utah anymore. It moved to Georgia and you see the walking dead and so many other productions taking place there right. um, because it is a less expensive place to work. Uh, it's a fairly reliable weather center. Texas has a lot of production, not as much as they used to. It moves to Canada and the like, but the headquarters are still here. For me, I was born in Los Angeles, so I'm a native. And for most people, uh, they immigrate into the industry in Los Angeles, and then they realize they don't have to be there. And it's certainly a lot cheaper to live out of Southern California. Uh, and if you're working on a series that takes you a year in a different city, picking up stakes and moving there might be worth it. But the the bulk of the industry is headquartered here, is grounded here, is rooted here. And so that, I think, is the primary reason. I agree. I think uh, the, the money is here. <laughs> that's, mm -hmm. the, that's the short reason. That's the simple reason. Yeah. Uh, start started with the the warm weather and the daylight, and now it's just the money's all here. Um, <laughs> you know, I or it comes here. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, and I also think it depends what you want to do. I think if you want to work below the line, if you want to work as a crew person, I think mm -hmm. a lot of those other places are great because there are still productions heading that way. Yeah, yeah, and there are opportunities where in Los Angeles there is a glut of talent, and right. especially yeah. since so much of it went to Canada and other states, yep. a lot of those people are hurting. And any opportunity, just like with Nightmare Cinema, you know, we shot it in town on a very, very low budget, and we got some astoundingly talented people who would not normally work on a film of that size budget because of the runaway production in California. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Tiny Viking writes, <laughs> Nick and Joe, I just completed my first thriller short film as a writer-director. Congratulations, Tiny Viking. Congrats. Uh, and I am excited to get it out on the festival circuit. I know you both are active in this realm and was curious as to if you had uh, any advice you could offer a newbie 
on submitting and keeping my expectations realistic? Well, uh, that's a tough one because um, normally I'm invited with a film or a production or, uh, or some specific reason to go to festivals um, where they ask to see the, the movies we've done. Um, but all of the festivals have websites. You know, there are a lot of genre festivals and they're looking for these things, you know, the, um, and there's Etheria, if you're a female filmmaker that, the, that is always looking for, for things, but go to their websites, find out, um, you know, look at some of the short films that you're competing against. Yeah. And, and see which of the festivals seem to be the most simpatico with your work. Um, you know, uh, is it a ghost story? Is it an HP Lovecraft? Is it, you know, there are different specialties, uh, areas of expertise that each of these festivals have. Um, is it more fantasy oriented? Is it more blood and guts? You know, each of the festivals has a personality and just dive into their websites and watch the films that they post and the, that are honored or you know have either won or at least played in those festivals and immerse yourself in that and uh, that'll give you the best idea and all of those websites will tell you how to make your submissions i think that's great advice the other thing as far as managing expectations uh i think is they don't always program short films based on the best ones uh, a lot of it actually is based on running time uh, because what they do is they program short films into blocks uh, where you have, you know, eight or nine or 10 shorts that are playing together. And those blocks have to be around an hour and a half to two hours. So if you have a 30 minute short film and there are, you know, several that are five minutes, they're probably going to pro program the five minute ones as opposed to the 30 minute ones, because, they can get more movies in that way. Um, so the longer your short film is in a festival setting, the better it has to be because you are, you are taking away real estate from other shorts that they could program in there. Good so, point. But if you have a really good one, that's a half an hour, they may well run it before they run a 90 minute feature. That's true. And that, that can happen as well. Uh, but, but, but that's just keep in mind that, you're competing with everybody else. Yep. And filmmaking has become very polished over the years because the tools to make good films are affordable for the hoi polo. Yeah. And and it's really great to see what people can uh, how they flex their cinematic muscles and and just know that it's it's really competitive out there and people are making really good high quality very polished material all around the country and all around the world. And speaking of that, one thing to keep in mind as you finish the film is sound is probably the biggest disqualifier for short films uh, in the festival setting because usually people don't have good production audio or good post-production sound mixing. Uh, so if you have a great sound mix on your short, it's, it's really going to give you a leg up as you go into these festival settings. Uh, so that's, that is the best we can do in, in hopes of <laughs> helping you get, get some festivals. Let us know how it goes, Tiny Viking. Uh, yeah. Good luck. Yes, good luck. Kevy Bear asks, 
any advice for screenwriters without representation to help get their work seen? Uh, the reason we've answered this before, and the reason I, I added it back in today is because the last year, I feel like everything changed with coronavirus and no one's been in LA. So what do you do? You know? Um, and I think some of the answers probably will stay the same, but I, I thought it was worth at least having a quick chat about again. Uh, yeah, well, Joe, you know better than I do about the uh, screenwriting competitions. And aside from getting material to agents, you know, getting it to an agent who likes it is going to be your strongest bet. Absolutely. Yeah, somebody who will work for you. But getting to them is a problem. And there are only a small percentage of valid agencies who will take material that is unrepresented. Yes. So um, you have to go through, you want an agent who's capable of, of having a relationship with people who might buy your work. But lacking that, um, Joe, you know a lot about screenplay competitions, so you should probably take that on. Yeah, I mean, there, there are a handful that are really good and reputable and are meaningful to managers, managers and agents. I mean, you could go and apply to the Oklahoma screenwriting competition, but that's not going to mean anything to an agent or manager around town. Things like the Nichols Fellowship, uh, things like the Final Draft, Big Break competition, um, ScreenCraft. There's there's several that are, are pretty reputable. Again, I think you got to do your research and, and figure out which ones those are. Uh, that information is out there, but you want to do the ones where the winners get put in front of managers and agents at reputable companies, uh, because that's how you get plucked out of the ether. Um, you know, and, and I, and I still think there is value in look, good work, good short films, good screenplays, the cream rises to the top. I mean, the perfect example was at the beginning of the pandemic, a friend of mine won South by Southwest with his short film. I put it in front of a studio exec that studio exec put it in front of a couple of agents or managers. He signed with CAA. They sold a feature version of the pitch to Paramount and the movie is going to shoot this fall. So like, so like, that means what that means is Joe, you are about to receive a plethora of <laughs> short films. <laughs> well, okay. I, that, that is, that's a whole other thing. Uh, no, no unsolicited <laughs> submissions, please. Uh, but, 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 but I guess what I'm saying is it still happens, Right. Um, it still happens because good material, when people find good material, if Mick finds a good shorter, if I find a good shorter, a great script, we want, it helps us if we show it to other people, uh, you know, like the, there's no, there's no downside in showing someone something that they're going to like. You well, know? and as you were a studio exec, you know that all of the studio execs uh, assistants and yep. friends and execs, they know each other. They talk yep. about what they read and what they liked. Oh, did you see so-and-so? Oh, yep. isn't this great? We're going to take it to so-and-so. Yep. So it's it, it, basically, it's, it's good work being exposed to places that can help you, which yes. is obvious. Yes. And, and so, yes, contests are a great way to, if you don't have representation, if you don't live in LA, if you don't have connections, uh, placing in a reputable competition is something that can get people's attention. But at the end of the day, it's not going to be the thing that gets you signed. It's the work that's going to get you signed. Right. Um, there we go. All right. So we've solved that again. <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> uh, I in the mind asks, uh, 
Uh, this is one that I think you can speak to better than I, because you are a, a writer of prose. Uh, can you provide any tips for writing a story in the first person? Interesting question, um, because most of my fiction, I do write in the first person. And I think there is a willingness to expose and embarrass yourself in the form of a character who, whose character you are wearing. Um, and writing from the inside out, to me, is one of the most effective ways to communicate a story uh, with an audience. Because unlike movies, which are seen from the outside in, fiction, the printed word, can best express internal emotions and thoughts and feelings far better than a movie can do. So I think it leans really easily into that. But I think there's a certain amount of emotional bravery that's required that you unlock yourself <clears throat> and be willing to embarrass yourself because it's not really you, it's a character, right? Mm -hmm. But you take on each of these characters, whether they are virtuous or villainous, they are elements of who you are. And one of the things I like to do in my fiction is take my worst qualities and amplify them a thousandfold and really be willing to be humiliated, be willing to let those nasty thoughts you never speak aloud come out in the form of your fiction because not everyone is pristine and heroic and not everyone is villainous and evil. But the complexity of human nature is so well expressed in the first person from the inside in fiction. And I sometimes have to force myself to occasionally go to the third person when I'm writing fiction because I do tend to fall into that and I don't want it to be a constant in, in my prose writing. It is interesting because it allows you, I think, especially versus screenwriting, uh, to explore nuance a little bit yeah. more character, yeah. uh, which, which you can't quite afford as much in third person and especially in a medium what is what is intended to be visual. Um, so there there yeah. is a lot of truth to that. Well, um, the great the great author and screenwriter Richard Matheson once told me something I've mentioned on the show before that I think is very profound, even though it's obvious as well, is that movies are external and books are internal. Mm -hmm. And that's a hugely profound statement, as simple as it may be. I agree. Um, Croik Shank Comics asks, Mick and Joe, if you were asked to write a horror-based superhero comic book or graphic novel, would you do it? For me, no. A comic book or graphic novel, maybe. Superhero, uh, that's not my area of expertise, <laughs> nor is it my area of interest. That is fair. Um, as, as ironic as it is that my name is uh, shared with the director of the Avengers, I, <laughs> I too am a, a very, very big comic book fan. I grew up with comics. I read them religiously as a child and would gladly, like Kevin Smith, would gladly love to dive into lots of those characters. Uh, so Marvel, give me give me a call when you want the other Joe Russo. Uh, <laughs> he, he doesn't cost as much. No, he's much cheaper. <laughs> uh, Mike asks, uh, Mick and Joe, what was the greatest moment of self-doubt in your professional life and what did you do to overcome it? 
Well, it probably was when I had directed Fuzzbucket, the first thing I'd ever directed, I'd wrote it and produced it and directed it for the Disney Sunday movie on ABC way back when. And this was while I was writing for Amazing Stories. And I'd gotten all this approbation for the writing I had done for Steven Spielberg and, and the Amazing Stories show. Steven passed on the idea of Fuzzbucket, which was called Mikey's Buddy originally. Um, to turn that into a, an episode of Amazing Stories. So I took it to Disney and they hired me to direct it in the hopes that I would sign on and be a, a contract Disney writer. Wow. Well, I went, it was my first professional directing assignment and I didn't know what I was doing. And I tried and I thought I was doing a good job and when it was done, it was very successful, but it was stylus and things like I had a crane shot outside of school and it was like, I got a crane shot. Isn't this cool? Well, everybody has a crane shot in their movie. You think right. you're doing something special because you've never done it before. Right. And after it was done, even though it, it was very highly rated and continued to run for years on the Disney Channel, it wasn't very good, you know, it, it, it's still a source of embarrassment. But even more so was Steven had offered me, Steven Spielberg had offered me the opportunity to direct an episode of Amazing Stories in season two. And I was thrilled and worked on it really hard and storyboarded it and really, really put a lot of energy into learning what the tools of cinema were. And, uh, you know, I sat with Steven Spielberg for two hours going over the storyboards because he wanted to see if I knew what I was doing. And after it was done, he could not have been greater. He, he could not have been more gracious or more encouraging. And it was the opposite of moment of doubt at that point. However, after that, he saw Fuzzbucket and he said to me, you know, if I had seen Fuzzbucket first, I probably wouldn't have offered you the opportunity to direct this. Mm. Now that is painful. And I'm being more honest than probably I should on this show right now. Yeah. But it's something that stuck with me. And it made me a much better filmmaker because I really sought out the knowledge of, you know, how films are made and the history of it and and the technical aspects of it that I didn't know when I was on Fuzzbucket, which was, I didn't know what a first assistant director did because my first AD on that show was sick the whole time and lazy, uh, if I may oh, say. Oh, um, and so I just assumed I had to do everything. So most of what the first AD did, I was busy doing and not thinking so much about what the meanings of the lenses are or how do I light this? Uh, fortunately, I had Bob Stevens as my director of photography who had done half of the Amazing Stories shows and he was great. But, you know, it takes a kick in the ass to, uh, to wake you up sometimes. You, you, people who are successful become complacent. And though I wasn't successful, I had the dream beginning to a career at that time. And I almost botched it. Yeah. You know, I was, I was gonna, 
I was going to answer something different, but but your story reminded me of another story that, that was similar, not Steven Spielberg. But uh, when I was a development executive and I was kind of quietly trying to write, um, I found the courage finally to show uh, the producer I was working for one of the scripts that my writing partner and I were working on. And uh, he read it and he put it down and he said, look, it's it's well written but it's just fine. You know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's just fine. And, and he's like, is this the one you want to go out to the world with? And it really jarred me, you know? Yeah. Um, and it, it made me sit back and go, is it the one I want to go out to the world with? And uh, we didn't, we ended, we ended up putting it in a drawer and we started on something new. And that next thing, that next new thing, uh, ended up be, getting set up with Will Smith's company and uh, I was working with Will Smith's partner on it. And, you know, I was kind of off to the races as a writer. Um, but, but it was, it, it, I had that moment of self-doubt where, uh, you know, it, something that was fine was not good enough. Yeah. You have to remember just fine is way not good enough because just fine is at the bottom of the pile of 30 scripts that an agent takes home over the weekend. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, so yeah, no, that's, that's, well, I'll, I'll stick with that. That's, I don't know if it was my that's greatest good. moment of self-doubt, but it was, it was definitely a, uh, a moment of clarity that has reflected what I've taken on ever since. A very uh, worthy one. Yeah. Uh, Darth Duff writes, um, in the most recent postmortem, uh, you referenced being on food stamps before working for Spielberg on amazing stories. Right. Um, I'd like to hear more about that period of your life. Were you ever worried about getting through it financially? Yeah, of course. But what had happened was I was working in publicity first at Avco Embassy, then at Universal Pictures, then at uh, PMK, which is a PR firm that handles mostly Hollywood clients. And so I was making a decent paycheck and I was doing making ofs and things like that. But I really was not happy promoting other people's movies, uh, especially a lot of the things that I was assigned to were not necessarily things I was particularly interested in. And all that time on weekends and nights, I would be writing and creating and trying to do things of my own. But I made the bold choice to stop it and just write and try and make a living that way. I would still do the occasional making of to, to pay the bills, but there was a period where it was either make it or die or go back to being an office worker. And office work is not what I'm best at, I don't think. <laughs> and uh, I'm sure many would agree. But um, yeah, so there were a couple of months where we really had to tighten our belts and, uh, um, it, it was a tough time. And I would, you know, I took a, uh, a non-union writing job for a thousand dollars to adapt a book that I found out later, the producer did not buy the rights to, oh. but you know, you're, you're looking for scraps and, yeah. uh, in, in search of dessert. Yeah, And I was lucky enough that, you know, uh, I was given that opportunity and, and have been able to work in, in the film and television business since. 
I, I can relate when I left the executive world uh, and to make the transition into writing, there was a solid two years where money was scarce and I took odds and ends jobs to, you know, help pay the bills. And, um, you know, my wife always says, though, if you have a plan B, you'll always fall back on plan B. Um, That's true. Yeah. I mean, if you don't, if you don't walk the tightrope, you're never going to make it to the other side. I, I kind of agree. I think I thought that was great advice and thank God she put up with me for those couple of years. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, Jay Lee writes, can you tell us about the Toby Hooper Spielberg reunion you orchestrated on the others? Yeah. Um, it was really heartwarming. You know, it was something that made me feel so good because there was always that controversy about Poltergeist and people yep. talked about Steven Spielberg directed it, Toby Hooper directed it. No, nobody did this. Nobody did that. And I think that it, that it put a bit of a schism between them, not of their own doing, but uh, from outside sources. Right. And they had not spoken to each other in many years. And when Stephen hired me as supervising producer on the others, my main job was to bring in directors uh, for the show. And so, because I had directed the pilot and I directed a couple others I brought in, Toby, I suggested Toby for one of these episodes. And, you know, Stephen obviously had not thought along those lines in a long time. And he said, that's a great idea. Do you think he'd want to do it? And I talked to Toby and Toby was excited to do it. And he did one of the best episodes of all of them took place on a, on an airplane and he just kicked his ass. And after that, Stephen hired him to do the miniseries taken for sci-fi. Right. And he did the pilot and a bunch of episodes and, and it was one of, the most gratifying things I was able to do was take these two enormously talented, enormously good people and put them together again after everybody had tried to push them apart. And what a great feeling that was. I bet. And a, a happy ending to, to the story. Yeah. Um, Demir writes, and this is a, this is a question for me. And I, I programmed this specifically after this for a reason uh, on the last AMA, Joe mentioned a studio horror franchise he was adapting for TV that didn't happen because of Haunting of Hill House. Mm-hmm. What was it? Uh, I, you know, if we got a little further down the road, I was going to ha- have a long chat with you about this, Mick, but uh, I was working on Poltergeist. Ah, <laughs> there already was a Poltergeist series. There was already. Oh, trust me, I had to do a deep, deep dive and everything. <laughs> the Showtime show. We watched all the all the sequels and everything again. And um, but but long and short of it is, there was a really interesting moment, like two years ago, maybe, where the horror blogs were like, Joe Russo, Avengers Joe Russo, <laughs> is adapting. Poltergeist and MGM for TV. And there was some truth to that because uh, we were doing it and the Russo brothers were interested in it. Uh, oh, wow. <laughs> so one it was of these really, days that's going to happen. I know it was, it was, so it was really funny to watch all the press kind of spiral out of control about that because it was, it was somewhat truthful and somewhat not. So, so basically just to kind of give people some context, uh, I had another show that I had written that was at MGM and the deal fell apart with the rights holders. And they turned to me and they were like, 
here's the library. What would you be interested in adapting? Uh, and so, you know, I took some time and, and went through and, and we had long talks about Poltergeist. And I think there was a lot of reservation about it because of the Sam Raimi produced remake, uh, not being as well received as they would have hoped. Um, so our kind of take, which I kind of mentioned last time, was uh, to go back to the original movie, the first movie, um, and and use that as doing like a sequel series uh, mm-hmm. that would take place 30 years later. Um, and it would explore what happened to the Freeling family after this one amazing event happened to them, you know, kind of dealing with the psychological ramifications of, of how that would impact the family. Um, I watched that show. Yeah, I, I well, and then and then Haunting of Hill House came out, uh, <laughs> which was about a family dealing with a supernatural event that happened to all of them when they were children, uh, and 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 so it kind of took the air out of our our pitch and our take, and it was I had a great experience working on it. It was a really fun p- playground to play in. Um, yeah. You know, we were trying our best to honor what Toby did, um, and uh, and 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 really spin it into something else. They brought Stephen Susco on to supervise us. Wow, which was great, and I had tons of fun working with him. And uh, yeah, it was it was barreling. It seemed like it was barreling full steam ahead, and then Hill House became a phenomenon. And it was it was just too it was just too close. And uh, but a really funny thing though was the head of MGM TV was on with the head of the Russo Brothers TV division when the Russos were trying to make a deal with MGM to to do their properties, and Poltergeist was one that they were they were eyeing. And, and the head of MGM was like, you know, it's funny. We actually have a, a Joe Russo working on this project right now already. <laughs> and, and their response was, we're aware of him. Oh, well, that's <laughs> nice to hear. <laughs> Which I thought was very amusing. Uh, so, so yeah, so that's, so that's the long and short of it. That's why it kind of disappeared. And then the Russo brothers MGM deal didn't make. And, uh, and, and so it just kind of fizzled into the ether, but, uh, for about six, eight months, I was, I was playing in that playground and it was a lot of fun. And so. it was interesting that Poltergeist was the last Spielberg production that he did not own. Yeah. And so everybody else has done so many remakes and attempts and rehashes and remixes and all, yep. but, uh, the next movie was E.T. and everything since, uh, it remains in his corral as uh, smartly so uh so so anyway well you know it was it was a a fun what if uh maybe down the road it'll it'll bubble back up but uh i don't expect it to um so that's that uh all right one last note uh one last question and i think it's a topic that you and i both really wanted to talk about this week um richard humphreys writes mick you shot the making of the goonies in an episode of tales from the crypt I'm wondering if you have any Richard Donner stories you'd like to share. Richard Donner was such a great guy. You know, I'd certainly known about him forever doing the Twilight Zone, the original Twilight Zone. The Omen was such a great movie Um, and Superman and the Lethal Weapon movies and all and Tales from the Crypt. But my introduction to him was on the Goonies. I did the making of the Goonies. So I was lucky enough to be able to spend some time on the set and talk with Dick, who, you know, really one of the nicest men in the world, big booming voice, great sense of humor. And he was just a guy who 
who works the way that I hope that I work in that he's inclusive of everyone, he's encouraging and watching him on the set, he's completely in control, but open up to everybody's creative ideas. And it was interesting watching Steven Spielberg doing second unit on the set while while Donner was shooting in the giant set with the with the boat, the pirate boat and everything. And Steven is directing a jailhouse escape uh, uh, on the set next door in the next stage. But he was so inclusive and so funny and so much fun. And then the next time I worked with him was I directed an episode of Tales from the Crypt called Whirlpool. And of course, Donner and uh, Joel Silver and Bob Zemeckis and Walter Hill were all executive producers on the show. But Donner was the one hands-on guy who really looked at everything and gave notes and the like. And again, so accessible, so smart, so experienced, so knowledgeable, and just a real mensch, a, a really bigger-than-life character. And, and uh, you know, I'm so fortunate to have been able to spend time with him. I just, I've heard nothing but wonderful things about him throughout my time in Hollywood. And I've heard nothing but great things this week. He, there was two stories that I heard that I thought were worth talking about. Uh, one is, I don't know if you saw this, but he paid for Chunk's college education. Yeah. I thought that was, I thought that was amazing. Uh, I guess he, Chunk went to him, the actor who played Chunk, uh, went to yeah. him with a, I went to him with a, a, a letter of recommendation to, to, or asking for a letter of recommendation. And when he read, you know, the actor's college essay about his, his life and, and such, uh, he was so moved by it that he offered to pay for his, his college career, which changed his life. Uh, That's the kind of guy Dick Donner was. Yeah. I heard one other story, which I thought was, was pretty cool. There was, um, uh, a writer who was sneaking onto the Warner Brothers lot, uh, trying to pull a Steven Spielberg, and he was looking for anyone that he could, you know, show his uh, short film and screenplay to. Um, and he was probably 20 years old, I think he said at the time. And uh, he saw Dick Donner coming out of his offices, and so he he ran over and he was like, "Mr. Donner, Mr. Donner, Mr. Donner," and like before he could even get the screenplay out of his, you know backpack uh i guess i guess dick said like um you know how old are you and he said you know, 20 and he said you're too young to have had your heart broken yet kid you can't tell a good story yet good for him <laughs> that's awesome and i thought that was so smart and it's so true you know yeah it's so yeah true. i have one more quick dick donner story yes, before we wrap it. up yeah way back when my wife's uncle lived next door to Dick Donner oh, and wow. he was an actor. He was trying to be an actor. And uh, so Dick put him in the, uh, a brief part in one of his Twilight Zone episodes. And so my wife and her brother went to play at Dick Donner's house and he had a small shark in a tank in his house. And oh. so, so he presaged Jaws uh, before working <laughs> with Spielberg. That's but um, just huh. everybody who had anything to do with him has nothing but nice things to say about him, including me. Yeah. And I would encourage everyone to go check out Mick's uh, Goonies making of not only because it's a lot of fun, but there's just some really great moments of, of Dick interacting with all the kids. And uh, yeah, it's, it's really special. So 
On that note, Mick. All right. We wrapped up another not so fun size episode of AMA. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you, Joe. And thanks everybody out there. And Joe, let them know how they can ask me anything. You can ask Mick questions by going to his Twitter and Instagram at Mick Garris PM, uh, or you can send questions to me at Joe Russo tweets or at Joe Russo Graham on Twitter and Instagram respectively. And we'll see you soon. Thanks, Mick. Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris on the Dread Podcast Network. Download new episodes every Wednesday and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app.